Syndicate listeners, welcome to another bonus episode. For longtime Phoenix residents, Jana Bombersbach needs no introduction. The Arizona Press Club awarded her their highest honor, the Distinguished Service Award. And she has been named Arizona Journalist of the Year on multiple occasions. Here's our first conversation with Jana, unedited. Some of it you've heard, much of it you haven't, as she tells her story and goes into detail on the Don Bowles case. Well, I'm a North Dakota girl. I grew up in a little town in North Dakota and was very interested in writing from the very start and was very encouraged by my teachers um, that I indeed was a good writer. And I was editor of the school newspaper. And, you know, it was I just found it fascinating to be able to talk to people. When I learned that there was a First Amendment that gave my my ability to ask questions, um, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I mean, this was the most unbelievable thing I'd ever heard about, you know? So I could be as snoopy as I wanted to be, and people, I had a right, constitutional right to do that. So I went to the University of North Dakota for my undergraduate degree and then worked in Flint, Michigan for several years, then decided to go to the University of Michigan for a graduate degree, got my master's there, um, and then found there were no jobs in the country. And everybody, there were, it was like ridiculous. Um, Toledo had a job. I didn't think I really wanted to go to Toledo. And then I got this call from Bob Early at the Arizona Republic and he said, I've got six jobs Nobody in the world had six jobs, right? And uh, it'll take a while to, you know, to get this going and stuff. And I said, you know, I said, you know, you can't wait around for me. You know, I mean, I, mean, I can't wait around for you. I said, I just have graduated in December. This is now, you know, February. Um, and uh, it helped that I was stoned, by the way, when this conversation was going on, um, which gave me some some bravery, you know. I said, but uh, so if you want me, you got to hire me like right away, right? So he called back and he said, okay, I want to hire you. He says, I'm going to offer you this much money. I said, oh, that's not enough money. I said, that's how much money I made at the, Repo- I was stoned again, at the, Repo- <laughs> at, the, at the Flint Journal before I ever got my graduate degree. I've got a huge debt to pay off. Oh my God. He said, are you going to be this much trouble? I said, probably. And he agrees that I was, you know, and so off I came here, um, coming about March in uh, 1972, um, and was originally assigned to cover a a variety of things and then city hall and then urban affairs. And, and then, you know, all of this went on. And four years later, four years later, I was sitting at the city desk when the call came that there was a car with reporters tags in the window blown up at the Clarendon Hotel. And um, immediately there was this scramble to figure out what had happened. Bob Early thought that it was Al Sitter who was the working investigative reporter because Don had decided that he was tired of, you know, always writing these articles and then getting no response from the Republic and getting no support from the Republic. I mean, they didn't editorialize for him. They didn't beat the you know bushes for him or beat the drums for him. So he was at the legislature covering the legislature, which ironically on that very day, June 2nd, was discussing the divestiture of the empire, um, uh, the, uh, the empire of the dog racing track, the dog tracks, which he had really advocated for, for a whole lot. Emprise was then the New Jersey company that had all the concessions and he was trying very hard to get them out of the state of Arizona. So the, he was covering that hearing in that morning before he went to the 1130 meeting to meet um, Harvey Adamson. You know, anyone who thought that Don had stopped investigative reporting doesn't know anything about Don Bowles or investigative reporting. You know, I mean, if somebody gives you a hot tip, 
even if you're doing something else, I mean, it's almost impossible not to do something to look at it. Maybe you can't go full bore. I get a lot of, a lot of tire kicking, you know, at, at, at my place. And, you know, I unfortunately have projects that are lined up for a long time, but every now and then one of them will just get me and I'll spend a week, you know, doing something else I'm not going to be doing in order to just, cause it's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. I mean, it's, it's in your blood, it's yeah. in your instinct. And so we knew that Don wasn't really uh, totally divorced from all this. And Adamson called and said, yeah, I got this hot tip about the mafia and land scams and da, 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 da. And of course he was going to go look. He had talked to people, several people that day, and in fact mentioned to several of them that he was going to meet this guy and ask about him. Do you know what John Adamson? Oh yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a con guy. He's just, you know, he's a wannabe guy hanging out up, up in the Ivanhoe and stuff. And, you know, and he's, I, I don't, I don't trust him. He said, like, oh, I don't either. But if he has something, maybe I, you know, maybe it might be a clue. And of course, then we know what happened next is the car exploded and, and that started in this incredible history of this case. Phoenix is now this bustling metropolis, but back then in the seventies, it was really this big, small town mm -hmm, in which mm -hmm. everyone knew each other. There were very mm -hmm. incestuous relationships with the local gangsters, the local politicians, you know, I, I've tried to explain to them like the scene at Durant's or the Ivanhoe back in those days where you could have, you know, a mafioso sitting shoulder to shoulder with the police chiefs who's sitting next to the mayor or the governor. And it was everybody knew everybody. Deals were handshakes, no contracts. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us your take on the Phoenix that you arrived in, you know, in the early 70s. And for me, this was a great big city because I came from a little town, you know, right. from, from North Dakota. But but I but quickly I discovered that. I mean, you discovered that, you know, in some cities you had to you had to um, investigate who were the movers and shakers. Here they announced themselves. Here they formed committees and said, here, here, here's who we are. And there were all the big shots in town. Um, the town was being run by Gene Pulliam, who owned the newspaper, you know, by Mr. Bimson, who was head of the Valley Bank, by Tom Chauncey, who was the head of Channel 10. Those three guys really ran. They decided things, you know, they pulled people together. If one of them called you, you, did, you took the call. You never passed this up. You know, people were when the, when this whole thing broke and someone said the name Max Dunlap, they said, "Oh yeah, he was he was a big shot in North High School." Mm -hmm. Well, that had been thirty years earlier, but they, you know, so people knew, you know, people knew around. It was it was not as much as it was back in the '30s when I first investigated for my book on William Ruth Judd, and boy, then it was like you literally were totally, completely connected. Mm -hmm. It was bigger than that now, but it was still a small enough town that there was an enormous amount of camaraderie between people. Um, and it wasn't considered, um, uh, you know, it wasn't considered naughty that, that Barry Goldwater knew mafia guys. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Because they were just there. Right. Yeah. You know, what was naughty was that Arizona was becoming the dumping ground for the mafia. And nobody seemed to kind of care about that except Don Bowles, who kept trying to expose this and say, you know, are you sure this is a really good idea? I mean, are you sure this is a good idea that all these guys can come out here? And this is the, this was the free territory, you know, it was we're almost like we were a territory again and we were being invaded by the Indians, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was like, oh my God. So um, this was a, it was a town where a lot of different um, associations were very close. And people knew each other very well. Um, reporters were probably too incestuously involved with their beats. I mean, I was covering City Hall at the time. 
Um, and I intimate, I mean, I not intimately knew, I mean, I, but I very well knew like all the city council members and the mayor and, you know, and we'd go have, we'd have drinks together and stuff. And, <clears throat> you know, the cop shock reporters are the ones that we really thought were too incestuous mm -hmm. because they only saw the cop's point of view on anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so those things were all happening. Don was um, not, never a great writer. Um, um, but he was, uh, but he was a phenomenal investigator and he, you know, I mean, you, you'd want to kind of rewrite his stories because mm -hmm. they were so good. The information was so good, but the writing didn't like, yeah, you know, you know it's got to grab you by the throat and make you say, I want to read every word of this, you know? Um, but he, but he cared so much about this community. I mean, he was, he was a friend of mine and I still have the placemats that he and Rosalie gave me for my housewarming when I <clears throat> bought my house and had the big party and all the Republic people came and, and uh, I was president of the first woman president of the press club. And we did a investigative reporting workshop and we got Don to be a, one of our keynote speakers. And we got, then we got a guy from LA and a guy from New York. And I mean, it, you know, on his credentials, we were able to make you know, a pretty phenomenal thing. He was always helping us out, but he was also, you need to know this about, it, he was also bra always a bragging. I mean, he always, he was, he was always, and I think Kathy Colby says this in one of the articles, <clears throat> he sometimes oversold what he had. Now, is he the first journalist to ever do that? No. Oh my gosh, have I ever done that? Of course <laughs> I have. You know, oh my God, this is the greatest story in the world. And <clears throat> I really know what's going on here. And that kind of thing, you know, happened too. So you have to kind of, you know, keep in mind that a lot of people's egos um, uh, were were very high at this time. Can you recall like the first time you ever like met Don Bulls? Like what what was that interaction like? What kind of like vibe did he get off? Well, he was very tall. He was kind of um, geeky looking. You know, he kind of he had this look of somebody who who could have been a corporate lawyer or could have been a you know a, a CPA you know kind of guy. I mean, he didn't look like an investigative reporter, which I you kind of think of as maybe a little disheveled and kind of he was just kind of he had on his studio eyes. He, he wore a bow tie a lot. He had this horrible haircut, um, but he was always nice. I mean, he was always friendly. He was always people were very warm when I came here. I mean, Bob Early had hired me and he made sure that everybody you know said hi to me the first day and you know everything and it was you know a small newsroom there was an open newsroom then so the whole everybody was in the same room so you'd see across the room and you'd see everybody in the whole thing and you had to be able to tune out I don't know how they still do it for newsrooms but I mean I can tune out anything you know I can be in the middle of a hundred people and and you know think about something independently because I learned that in a newsroom um <clears throat> I got to know Rosalie who I still know and she was a darling um I mean they were just nice they were very nice people he was always very cordial he was always trying to help help be helpful to other people and and just you know and you could go to him and say I went to him one time and said do you know I can't remember the name it was some weird name I had never heard of and he says I do know that name and he says and you should forget that name he says you should not be even near that name so just you know it's sort of like you know warding me away you know and later I said that same thing to Sitter and he said well that was good advice <laughs> that'd be really good advice okay good I don't care about that guy I don't know who that guy is going back to the bombing do you think you could walk us through that day from when you got the call in the newsroom to you comforting Rosalie in the hospital at the end of the day. Mm, that whole that whole day is so seared. You know, there were things in your life that you just never forget. I remember just sitting there and I was at the newsroom because I you couldn't make long distance phone calls from your desk. You had to use this desk city desk. And I was calling the EPA in San Francisco, which is why I was at the sitting at the city desk. 
And when the call came in, I just said, excuse me, something just happened here. I'll talk to you later and just hung up. And I just sat there and kind of froze. And it was like, I didn't have any idea what was going on, you know? Um, and I, I just, uh, early, I, you know, who was our rock, you know, he was like our guy. I've never seen more panic on his face in my entire life. Since and since then, never have again. But it was like no one could believe this that something would happen. I mean, there was an unwritten rule in the mafia, for instance, that you don't go after cops or journalists, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about not wanting problems, right? So leave those guys alone, you know. Well, here was a with the, not only eight journalists, but the most prominent investigative journalist in the state of Arizona in the midst of legislative hearings breaking up an incredible empire from a company that had already been tied to the mob in other states. I mean, my God, it was like a scenario out of, you know, law and order or something, you know? Um, so I sat there and I and watched and, and it, you know, where's Sitter, where's Sitter? Cause they thought it was Al Sitter. Cause he thought that Don was at the legislature. And then Al comes wandering into the newsroom. Oh my God, who is it? Who is it? And finally somebody called me and said, it's Bowles. And they said, what in the hell is he working on? What's he working on? And he's screaming, he's screaming. You know, his voice is the voice I hear that day um, going he, he, very, very upset, obviously, right? Um, and then finding out how bad things were. We assumed immediately that the guy was dead because, there, you know, how many times does a bomb go out underneath your car and you're not dead? And if there had been six sticks of dynamite, like Adamson said, he would have been dead. Right. There couldn't have been six sticks of dynamite under that car. They've recreated the bombing and six sticks of dynamite obliterates the car. Well, this thing went under, you know, went under him and tore off his legs and his arm, but it didn't kill him. So it couldn't possibly have been six sticks of dynamite. So we know that that's not true. Um, but anyway, he was obviously wounded badly enough that we knew that this was terrible. We thought he was going to die within minutes or... Um, and so, um, ironically, that night, most of the journalists went to the Dur to Durant's. That's what was a hangout for us, too. It's also where you could find a lot of good information. So mm -hmm. you always hung out. You never know who you're going to see, you know? Mm -hmm. And they always were buying drinks. So that was great. Um, and, um, and we sat there. I remember sitting there and I'm saying, I, I just can't stand this. I just can't. I said, I've got to go to the hospital. I got And my friend Linda Vachada, who worked in the women's section, she was with me. She was one of their editors. And we went over to, to the, to the hospital and, um, Bill Shover was there, who was the communication director at the, at the Republic. And, and we hugged and he said, oh my God, that's just so horrible. And they've got Rosalie here. And I said, I just can't stand this. And she heard my voice and she said, Jana, 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 come back. They won't let anybody see anybody come back here. And so she called me. And so they let me in and I went back and she's in this room and it's dark. And she's, oh my God, it's so awful. And she's just danced down the hall somewhere, you know, she says, they won't let me see him. They won't let me see him. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that's probably a merciful of them. You know, you just knew he had to be a moral order. Yeah. You know? And, um, and she says, well, how could this happen? How could this happen? And I said, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and, and I didn't, you know, maybe at that moment I should have said, what was he working on? Or I should have been, you know, but I never did. I was just there as a friend to console. I wasn't there as a reporter to report or anything. And I just remember sitting there with her for a while and just holding her hand and, and just letting her cry and uh, and just feeling, you know, and I cried. And I mean, everybody was just so totally, totally upset. Um, and then day after day, one amputation after the next. I mean, 11 days that man lived. 11 days. Yeah. You know, I said at one point in one of the stories I wrote, I said it was almost like he finally got our attention and he wasn't going to let go. He knew he was not going to win this battle, but he was going to make it last as long as he could so that everyone had to know. But do you know that that night, 
that first night that he that that this happened, he wasn't even the main story on on Channel Ten. Oh, really? Their main story on Channel Ten was something to do with the Phoenix Suns. Wow. It wasn't until the next day that it sort of dawned on television, and, and television was nowhere near where it is now. The television reporters, uh, uh, reporters was a, a word that I would not have used for most of the people who were employed <laughs> on, at TV. They looked good, they could read, but they couldn't, you know. Uh, so there weren't, there, there were a couple of really good people in town, but there weren't a lot. And um, and so television took them a day to figure out what the hell was going on. But radio was way ahead of them. Radio reporters are good reporters. You know, they've always had to be good reporters. Um, and they didn't care what they looked like. They just wanted them to be able to gather information, you know. So um, the radio was all over the place. But I mean, I'll never forget that. It was like, you're kidding me. You cannot. This is the biggest story in the country. So that was just so the next day. Um, I mean, I went back to City Hall the next day to do my job. And Chief of Police uh, Larry Wetzel was there. And he came out of the elevator and he just enveloped me in his arms. He's a big guy and enveloped me in his arms. And he says, we'll get these guys. We'll get these guys. And I mean, I took him at his word. I took him at, you know, I had no reason to believe that they were not absolutely on top of this that they would take every resource they had to find out this was going on and what had happened and who did it and that they would catch these people and they would, you know, and Adamson's name came up very early and, the, and that was going on. Neil Roberts' name came up really early. I mean, I think our guys, and it was Paul Dean and um, Charles Kelly were the two, two of the main guys from the Republic. I'm sure there were others, but those are the two that come most to my mind. Who were over, I know, looking at, because Neil's office was at, on Virginia, the corner of Virginia and 3rd Avenue, and they were out there stalking out his place that very afternoon. So his name came up right away, and so did Adams's name come up right away. Um, and so the people were looking all over the place for everybody, and they were piecing together. And our guys, I mean, between Char uh, Kelly and and Paul Dean, they were getting they were getting just gobs of information. I mean, they were going to every source they had. And they were getting, there was all kinds of great stuff. So we were writing stories, of the, they were writing stories of the Republic that were really starting to piece things together, right? They didn't have enough to, to um, arrest Adamson on the murder. It wasn't a murder yet, on the bombing. They had enough to arrest him on some old warrants for some stupid stuff like, oh, get this. They arrested him for running out on the bill at the Clarendon Hotel. They ran, he ran out on the bill at the Clarendon Hotel, and that's where he had Bowles meet him. I also know that that very day he took his dog to the racetrack and the dog's name was Dorothy. That's one of those pieces of trivia that I'll never forget. It's like, why does that stick in my head that I know his dog's name was Dorothy? I, I, I don't know, but anyway. So so the Republic was, the newsroom at least, was, was very committed and was going very, very big. And then the IRE came to town. And of course, we thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. The IRE had just been established. They, this was their first big project, in, in investigative reporters and editors. Bob yeah, Green, who is this big, bigger than life, was it this bigger than life journalist, physically bigger, but also, you know, emotionally bigger. I mean, he was just, he, you know, he, he just took over everything and made you believe that he could figure out anything, right? I was gone through part of this thing because my, my godfather died in Montana and I went up for the funeral. And so... By the time I get back, I get picked up at the airport and they said, there's a meeting tomorrow night you got to go to. And I said, what, what kind of meeting? You know, there's a meeting you got to go to. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know what's this meeting about. Well, it's about the IRA. They're going to come into town. They're going to do all this stuff. And we, I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm not, 
I'm, I'm covering City Hall. I mean, I'm not really in that mix. You know, I don't know what's really going on. Um, but everybody was like kind of, you know, secretively running around and they lived, they were at the Adams Hotel. And so the reporters kept hanging out there, hoping that they could be helpful and stuff. And Bob Early was there all the time. Um, and then the Sunday came. Oh, and then Sanford commits suicide, quote unquote, commits suicide, who was the Bowles editor. And it was also a dear friend of ours. And his wife was the woman's editor at the Republic. So his wife, you know, it was like this double whammy because yeah. we knew both of them so well. Uh, Janet Sanford, who just recently died just last year. And um, and he supposedly shot himself with a gun that he had received from the Arizona Press Club for an award that he'd gotten for being an outstanding editor. Mm. Um, and this guy was a magnificent journalist. He was an absolute magnificent journalist. And, and there are many theories that this was not a suicide whatsoever, but this was another killing that has gone unsolved. Um, and so th then it was like, you, there's a meeting you're going to go to. And that meeting was to create a union because at that point, the report, reporters in the Republic said, this is enough. This is enough. Yeah. These guys are, we, uh, this is out of control. So they, the, the union came, the, you know, came in to help organize the union. So in the midst of all this stuff, we're organizing a union, which we did. We never got a contract, but we did survive the first vote and got ourselves established. So. And, and I, I'm glad you brought up the Arizona project because it, it feels like it was something that was started with the best intentions. But mm -hmm. there, I, I know even uh, Don Devereaux and some of his blogs, and he was part of the Arizona project, right. have been somewhat critical of how it turned out. What was your impression of, of not just the, the organization of it, but what it became, like the 23 or 24 part series right. that they wrote about and the sprawling investigation, but it somehow seemed to miss the actual point of its formation. Some of it, some of it was. I mean, some of it was really good. Yeah. Um, and Bob Green was a really good journalist, yeah. and so was the other people that were there. Sometimes I thought that they missed because they didn't understand the culture of Arizona, and so they they would go, they would do a something like, and I said it wasn't a naughty thing for Goldwater to know a mafia person. Well, in their mind, it was a naughty thing for that to happen, right? So they would they would miss nuances like that. You know, you can you can understand those things. You can you can look at those connections and you can use that but to, to make a leap of judgment that well that means he must be a mafia guy well nobody in, in arizona ever believed that barry goldwater was a mafia oh, guy right? right he was not a mafia guy yeah. but so but so i think they made some they were used to the the, the nitty-gritty i mean bob green was from long from long island wasn't he i think yeah so i mean they're used to some really nitty-gritty stuff back there and they've got the they've really got the mob back there so that he, he had been involved in a lot of those kinds of things so they made some kind of leaps in judgment and leaps in connections that were found very odious mm -hmm. in Arizona, some of which were probably true, but were not presented in the exact way that it meant that it was missed. So that was the mix that the miss that was going on there. But what was most most horrible was I remember that the right before that thing came out, it came out on a Sunday mm -hmm. and we had our union meetings on Sundays. And um, Saturday or Friday, I was called into the general to the managing editor's office. And he said, I, I want to explain to you. It was how Harold uh, Milks. When I explain to you why we're not going to run the IRE, I said, what do you mean we're not going to run the IRE? He says, well, it's not up to our standards. I said, these are some of the best journalists in the country. What are you talking about? No, he says, you won't believe some of the stuff that they're saying. Da, 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 da. Well, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a good enough journalist to understand, you know, the nuances of, you know, mm -hmm. somebody was telling him this, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the whole, but they only had called in the people that were the editors or sub-editors, and I was the sub-editor of the Urban Affairs team. And so, 
when the, on Sunday came and there was a notice saying we are not running the IRE, the, the Phoenix went kind of berserk. Mm -hmm. It was like every journalist in town was ticked off like crazy, right? But what happened is that the New Times, which was a nothing little weekly thing over here, the New Times jumped on it and printed the whole IRE series. And, it, and that's what made the New Times uh, what it is today. pay attention to yeah. what it was, right? So, um, so it was good for that because it, it created a whole new voice in journalism over here that people came to rely on for a long, long time. I think it's still do in many ways. Yes. Um, but it also was greatly damaging to the Republic. But I do think that a, a more careful reading and editing of that series would have been helpful. It, it's a big thing when you start accusing people of being associated with people who are criminals. You know, yeah. that's a big deal. Even if they're public figures, you know, yeah. you have to show that there's no malice, right? There's no malice in that. Well, it could look like malice. You know, yeah. this was a very malicey looking, you know, kind of thing. You're trying to you know, you're trying to figure out what happened to another reporter. And so I'm sure that a lot of, um, yeah, so the decision here wasn't as dire as we saw it mm -hmm. when the other papers also agreed with it. Um, but when you read the, when you read, a, there was a lot of really good information in there. I wanted to get into your theories, especially in the director's cut article that you wrote. But first, I'd like to get your input on just the state sanction theory that's out there right okay. now involving Adamson, Dunlap, and Kemper Marley. How do you feel that it's inaccurate? Like, how, how do you think that story came to fruition? Well, I say there are four things you need to understand about the Don Bowles case. Number one, the state's theory is totally wrong. Number two, um, the police sabotaged their own investigation into this murder. Number three, two innocent people went to prison. Max Dunlap died there. And number four, this case has never been solved. So if that's the framework you start off with, then you've got a good play, way to move forward. The state's theory is ridiculous because it's based on a lie. The state's theory is that Don Bowles was killed because he had written a story a while back about Kemper Marley that cost Kemper Marley his job on the Racing Commission. And that this ticked off Kemper Marley, who asked his friend, Max Dunlap, who was like a son to him, to organize a thing and get somebody to kill Don Bowles. And it's called the Marley Theory. And it was fed to them by Neil Roberts in the most ridiculous plea deal ever negotiated in the history of jurisprudence. Without uttering a word, they gave him immunity from everything for them, him to give them a theory. Boy, well, I like that deal if I ever get in trouble, right? I mean, it was absolutely mind-boggling, bad, bad work, right? And after that, it goes to what Adamson, John Adamson said to me personally, to me and to Paul Rubin, yeah. when we sat with him on death row in Florence prison in 1896, 1986, when we were doing a huge investigation for the New Times. Um, and we sat there and we talked and he was very, oh God, he was so friendly. And I remember, remember Paul kept looking at me and, you know, thinking, well, I think he's flirting with you. And it was like, oh God, odious, right? And then we, but we're asking him questions and we're playing along and we're being nice. Like you are when you do an interview, you don't sit there and say, you son of a bitch, you know, yeah. you sit there and say, hey guy, how you doing? You know, how's, how's prison? What's the food like? You know, I mean, you try to make them feel comfortable with you so that they'll, they'll give, right? And so we say, you know, what about the state's theory that, that, that he says, I, I didn't kill Don Bowles for something he already wrote. I killed Don Bowles to stop him from writing a story. And I remember that even when I say it now, my stomach kind of does this flip. And I remember I was sitting down and Paul was standing up because we only had two chairs and Adamson's on the other way. And 
I remember that I was so shocked that I had to stand up and turn away because I didn't want him to see how shocked I was. And I thought I was gonna throw up. I mean, my stomach just went a total flip. Like I've now heard the guy who was admitted to killing my friend say that he was killing him for a story he didn't write. What is that story? And so I said, what is, when I finally got myself back together, Paul was calm as a cucumber, thank God, because that's the kind of guy he is, you know? And I came back to it. I said, so what was that story? He said, I don't know. He said, but he was going to go to San Diego for something. And they had to, they had to hurry up because I had to kill him before he could go to San Diego. So why was he going to San Diego? And what was in San Diego information that was going to help him, right? There are several theories about this. One of them is that he was going to, that he had discovered a money laundering thing between Las Vegas and the dog tracks. Okay. Another is that he had discovered a, a, a some kind of a laundering thing between some, some kind of thing at Motorola, precious robbery metals thing. and a robbery there. And another was that he was going to San Diego because he was going to get information on Brad Funk, who was the hothead of the Funk family that, that was the M. Price family, who had been divorced from his wife, who supposedly Don was, was courting in a weird way. And that the guy that was going to be, he was going to get the wife to, to get all these documents through the divorce proceedings that were going to help Don in his investigation, including an allegation that Brad Funk had molested his children. So though, so you've got this range of theories, right? All of these are coming up stories. All of these are, and all of them involve the Funks. And Emprise. So, I mean, you, you, you sort of have a roadmap here. I mean, there's like when the signs say go this way, you kind of think you should go that way, right? Which is the way we thought everybody was going, you know, at the very beginning. We thought, well, everybody knows because, because Don himself said, find them, you know, Emprise, the Funks, John Adams said, I mean, when you, when you name your own killers, don't you think you should listen? This isn't some guy throwing out random names. Yeah. This is a guy who, has thought about who's going to kill me, try to kill me. And these are the people who are going to try to kill me. Yeah. Literally his last breaths. Exactly. Exactly. So who in their right mind does not go in absolutely in that direction, right? That's what the direction that our, our people were going. They were looking at all those things, right? And we thought that everybody was going in that direction. And it wasn't until much later in 1986, as we're investigating this whole case that we discovered the Phoenix police department is not going in that direction at all. In fact, they are going in the opposite direction. They are destroying all any evidence that ties the Funks and Emprise to Adamson or to anything to do with this case. And we can't understand what, why in the hell are they doing that? So we outline that very clearly in this special report we did in which we show that they sabotaged the entire investigation and then tried to hide their sabotage by re, re, uh, uh, copying the the file and renumbering the file. Well, one of the guys who's in the organized crime division knows this file well. He doesn't even need the, the, the reference card to get to it. He knows exactly this is number 851, I think, right? He goes right to the file, picks up the file. He goes, this whole damn thing is, is photocopied. What happened to the original documents? And some of these things that in here, they're not here. Where are they? And the other guy says, oh, we've got them in our desk. And it's like, so eventually, thank God, one of these guys comes forward and starts admitting what's going on. If they'd have had all that information, I think there would have been a totally different way of going. You know, um, I just find it all so disturbing. And I can't look at the Phoenix Police Department any longer as an investigative unit which, without being very suspicious. 
You know, who are they framing now? I mean, I just did a whole book about them framing Deborah Milky, who went to death row for 25 years. You know, and we have the same kind of thing that that they hid things. They knew things were wrong. They, they you know, they wouldn't admit to things. They obfuscated. They, you know, they blackmailed they, all this stuff. This is our cops. You know, so when I'm pretty jaded about the Phoenix Police Department, I have very good reason to be that. I'd like your input on Max Dunlap, especially because you you are you know, pounding the table for his innocence, which I think a lot of people are starting to now look at the same way, but also your thoughts on Kemper Marley and who he was in town and any type of culpability he may have, may have had, or was this just kind of a frame up job? There's a theory that Joseph Bonanno and him were on the outs and Kemper Marley was kind of used as a, a shield for what was really happening. The real reasons behind why Don Bolton. And, you know, and that and that could be. I mean, Kemper. I never knew Kemper myself personally, um, but I have. I see no connection with Kemper Marley in this murder. I could. I. I never found anything that told me that this guy was the ogre that they said he was. And, uh, there's no physical evidence of that. I think that the, the the Kemper Marley theory was simply a way to get to Dunlap. Mm -hmm. You know, to make Dunlap the patsy. And and even Adamson said that. Uh, no, it wasn't Adamson that said that. No, it was not. It was. Um, it was Roberts, the the woman, Eileen Roberts, Eileen Roberts yeah. who was a secretary, yes. too. She sat in my backyard for hours one day and told me this long, long story. And and she heard Neil Roberts say, um, uh, he said to her personally when she was trying to probe him, he, she said, you know, Dunlap was always the patsy. You know, well, I think that's true. I think Dunlap always was the patsy that he says, will you do me a favor? Yeah, I'll do a favor. He did the favor at the wrong favor at the wrong time for the wrong person. And that's the only thing they had to tie him. And then Adamson, of course, is ma is mau-mauing and is parroting what Roberts is telling. Because Roberts is the one who saved Adamson. He had already, the day before the murder, had already booked a hotel suite for he and his wife up in Lake Havasu. Had arranged for a plane to get him out of town. Got him out of town for a whole day. So, it, so what Neil says to Adamson, well, you're going to say this, you're going to say that. Well, of course, because that, that's where his money's going to come from. That's where he's, his wife's going to be taken care of. That's how he's going to get out of town, all that. So, um, so Neil Roberts had far more to do with this case than Kemper Marley ever did. Um, and so I think that Kemper was, was, uh, was not there. And I think, and I think poor Max Dunlap, who's tried so hard to prove his innocence. And I mean, I got to know some of his family because I did some stories about, you know, this and stuff. And his families would call me or email me or say, you know, just thank you for, you know, taking an honest look at this, you know, and it broke your heart to think, because he had like six or seven children, I think. Yeah. And this guy had been the, the, the homecoming king. He was president of the senior class. This was the kid who made good out of North High School, you know. For a long time, I did not believe Devereaux. Devereaux was the first one that said Kevin Marley's innocent. Mm -hmm. So Devereaux gets credit for that, right? I didn't believe Devereaux for a long time. I mean, I just thought he was blinded to this thing. I thought, oh, well, he's, you know, come on, come on. But the more I got, and then when I, then, then Jimmy Robeson called and said, I want to talk to you. So I go to the jail and see Jimmy Robeson, who's up for a new trial, right? And during that trial, when he was declared not guilty, finally, I'm interviewing him, you know, like four or five times in, in jail. And, and he's telling me all this stuff. And he, and he said, you know, I never knew Kemper Marley until we walked into the, to our trial together. He says, the day that that all happened, I was out doing this plumbing job over here or something. And I thought, well, why didn't you have that person come forward and say, hey, he was with me? And he says, well, nobody was you know, nobody was working with him. I mean, everybody was just, you know, they just wrote him off. He was the dumb one, right? He was the guy who was just the, all you had to do is push the button, right? And nobody was was rallying to his cause. 
I mean, Max always had supporters. There was always a whole variety of people around Adamson. But poor Jimmy Roberson, who's kind of, you know, this was kind of a, you know, schlup. He was a working class guy who got tied up into this, tied up in this thing because they, they said so. And the only information they had on him was Adamson. And when Adamson wouldn't testify any longer, they had to let him go, you know, and then he got a new trial and then he went. But when they first let, let Max Dunlap out, Max was fighting desperately to have a trial, state or federal, to prove his innocence. But it was important to him to clear his name, you know, that people would know that this was not true about him. And then when they try him again and they find him guilty again, when they find Robeson not guilty, was was astonishing to everybody. You know, and it was and it was very disheartening. I'm absolutely convinced that Max was innocent. And I and I, you know, and I don't think Jimmy had anything to do with it either. I think Jimmy was just another guy who got sucked into this thing because they needed an excuse. And I do not believe there were six sticks of dynamite because the, the yeah. evidence shows that there couldn't have been. So I'm not even sure Adamson was the guy who actually set the bomb because yeah. he's always claiming six sticks. Well, how do you miscount the sticks of dynamite in your hand? I did want to follow up a number of questions with regards to Neil Roberts. It seems to me if there's a ringleader in this whole thing, it's Neil Roberts. I think Neil Roberts is absolutely up to his neck in this thing. I think that Neil Roberts order, you know, was the conduit between whoever ordered this killing. And I think it's somebody in Emprise ordered this killing. And I don't know if it was Brad, the hothead, or if it was somebody up high, higher up. But, it, but Brad is a more likely candidate than anybody else because everybody else is smarter than that. They know how bad this is going to be. Although, now look. What consequences they have? Nothing. Nothing. So how is it supposed to dissuade anybody from going after journalists? You know, Um, but I think that Neil was the was the he 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 had all the he had this his fingers in all these piles. He had the money. He had the contacts. He had the thing. He's the one, by the way, that Barry Goldwater called from Washington D.C. the night of the murder, night of the bombing, bombing, and said. What the hell is going on? How high up does this go? And what is it going to cost to make people shut up? So that's the guy that Barry Goldwater, that's the guy that Barry Goldwater thinks knows what's going on. Now, if Barry thinks it's going, that's the guy, then I think that's the guy. I mean, I, those quotes, I believe, came from Eileen. I'm thinking, I don't know, I can't remember exactly where, but you'll find that in that special report that, so, so people are like, oh my God, what's, you know, what's happening? So, yeah, so I think that the, whoever designed that uh, plea deal, and I think, believe it was Don Harris, wasn't he the county yes. attorney then? Yes, Don Harris was the one. Don was not that stupid. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, how you could have possibly, who said to him, this is a good idea? I mean, yeah. you would think he would know better. Yeah. I mean, I know he knows better because I know he wasn't that stupid. Yeah. So something was, something was pulled, some string was pulled in that whole thing. So um, whoever pulled that string, I don't know. But somebody pulled a string with the county attorney to give the sweetest deal in the world ever given to yeah. to, to Neil Roberts. I wanted to touch on like Roberts' actions uh, after the bombing. Mm-hmm. What could you say about like the three stolen cars from him and his secretary? I know. I, I think I know. It sounds to me, and I think we speculated that there were the three guys who got out of town. You know that there were hitmen who were brought in to do this, and that Adamson was the local patsy. Two of those cars were found at the airport, right? And weren't, uh, sorry to interrupt, but um, wasn't all this information disregarded by the the main investigation? Absolutely. They they never even, I think it was the Republic that reported on the three cars the first time. You know, they never like, they never paid any attention to that at all. So I, I have no idea what those three cars were, but I mean, two of them at the airport, which assumes to me that that's where the guys got off. 
to, and, and who was flying out? And, and, and that wasn't Adamson at that point. Adamson's going off on a private plane over here. So this is before, this is the morning of the bombing, uh, which I would presume would be immediately after the thing, off they go. And, they, and they're out of town before the police ever get to the scene. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That they are going right now. So, so that shows another, another culpability is that those cars meant something to this, invest, in, in, to this murder um, and they're owned by Neil Roberts. And so why are his cars the ones involved if he's not, you know? So just to kind of follow up on that, you know, we a number of things we've you've already brought up about, you know, Robert's arranging for travel for, for Adams and his wife, the amount of money, you know, the frantically trying to raise $25,000 the day of the bombing. Uh, I wanted to know if you found this, I read this summer and I, I want to know if you confirm it, that both Neil Roberts and Adamson failed polygraph tests provided by the state of Arizona. Have oh, you ever heard of that? I've never heard that. I don't believe it was either in one of uh, Devereaux's investigative pieces, but I came across that, that allegedly the state of Arizona, whether it's PD or someone uh, as, as the court cases loomed closer, that both men failed polygraph tests. I never heard that. I, 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 no, I never have. Okay. And I don't know how they would ever get Neil Roberts to take a polygraph right, test. Right, right. Especially know? when he's getting blanket muted yeah. in a second. Okay. Yeah. 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 The, and, and you mentioned one thing that, that is still puzzling to me is that why do they have trouble raising money? That's the one thing I've never understood. They knew they were, you know, they knew they were going to kill this guy this day, yeah. right? Because it's obvious their pre-plans were already made. So why are they having trouble with the cash? I mean, who's the cash guy who's supposed to deliver the money and why wasn't the money delivered then? Yes. And I've never understood. I, I mean, I have no answer for that. And that's kind of something, you know, you talk about Kemper Marley's potential innocence. I, if Kemper Marley is involved in this, I can't imagine you're going to struggle to raise $25,000 no. for him. He probably has it in his pocket. Correct. It's probably walk-around money, you know? My dad tells stories from the restaurant back in the day. Kemper and his attorney would sit in a booth over by the jukebox, and Kemper always carried just stacks, I mean, twenty five dollars to $30,000 in a, in a briefcase. That was never an issue to have some Kemper. So yeah. Yeah. that's something else that makes you think. Yeah. I, you mentioned Brad Funk, and I do have a couple questions about okay. Brad Funk. Um, obviously, you've kind of given us an impression about your character impressions, but I'm wondering, I read it was Lake Headley, the author that wrote the book about uh, about this case, and he alleges that Funk fled Phoenix and voluntarily checked into Beverly Manor, a drug and alcohol rehab resort in San Diego. Uh, William Wright, who was his roommate at the rehab facility, stated that Funk appeared to be in good shape and not needing any type of drying out. After the bombing, Funk made statements to Wright about how Adamson was merely a stooge in the bombing. They were together every day during the period, the 11 day period, it took Bulls to die. Uh, and Wright, the most consistent thing Wright keeps saying is Funk clearly knew way too much about the killing for a man who's hundreds of miles away, locked in a rehab center with no real phone calls in or out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you ever know anything about that? I only know what, what Lake wrote. Uh -huh. And I thought it was fascinating yeah. because it, it, it was clearly an alibi. Yeah. And clearly establishing an alibi. Yes. That was exactly what I would do. Yeah. I'd go check myself in someplace and I would just stay there and I would, yeah. you know. So I think, so that's exactly what, what he was doing. Um, but he clearly knew what was going on and he clearly wanted to be sure that nobody could get him, that he, that he knew he would be a suspect. I think Lake came as close as anybody to finding, you know, showing that, that the, the connection is there, Yeah. but he was very clever in trying to cover it up yeah. and trying to give himself an alibi. I wanted you to kind of tell our, our listeners a little more about both Eileen Roberts 
and Molly Ivins. I'd start with Eileen Roberts, but then if you could finish up with the Molly Ivins story and how she ended up giving a deposition with regards to her interview with Roberts and, and her firm belief that Roberts was kind of the man with the plan. Absolutely. Um, Eileen Roberts was uh, the secretary and, um, and she was very disturbed by all this. She was not involved in this in any way whatsoever. I mean, she just worked for the guy, but she, but you know, Neil became a, a horrible alcohol drunk and became very ill and she helped nurse him at the end. You know, she would actually took help take care of him, um, out of the goodness of her heart. And she was always upset that what she had heard over, overheard, um, was, was enough information that the police should be moving on it and should be knowing what was going on. Um, so she's the one who gives a lot of insight into what was going on in the office that on Virginia, um, the days, those days. And, and, and it always disturbed her. I mean, I think she wanted, I think she expected the police to take her seriously and they never did. You know, they treated her like sort of like, you know, I, I, I've always said that when a woman is besting a man, he always accuses her of being a whore, you know. So they kind of treated her like she was probably a floozy or something, you know. And so they tried to d discount her and, and, and to knock her down, you know, so that she couldn't didn't have credentials. And none of that was true. I mean, she was just a working girl who, you know, who, who knew a lot of stuff and wanted to share that stuff and wanted the, this thing found. And, and indeed thought that her boss was because of what she'd heard. Yeah. You know, she'd overheard some conversations. She overheard. I think it was I think she was the Goldwater source. Um, so she I, I felt I felt very bad for her that yeah. she had never been that they tried to sully her yeah. when she was um, uh, when she was just trying to help. You know, and Molly, you know, Molly was, I don't know if any, if you, any of you know about Molly Ivins. I mean, she was, you know, she was the kick-ass, absolute kick-ass Texas girl, a big boned, um, smart as hell. You know, she was on television for a while and she was with the Texas Observer for many, many years and was a great writer and, and wrote all these great stories about, you know, the, um, you know, the Goldwater family and what, how idiot, what idiots they were. And, you know, and not Goldwater, the Bush family, I'm sorry, the Bush family. Because they were Texas families, you know, President Bush and then the second president, you know, um, and and she would make fun of them, and and she had she had the most clever books that were political commentary. You should read these; you just would love these books to make you laugh out loud. Um, and she had done an interview with um, with Eileen and with and with Neil too. Right. She, Neil, with, Rob, Neil, Neil Roberts was the one interview that really scared. Right, and and he. Um, I can't remember the exact specific thing that he had said to her, but she was scared enough with what he had said. She, he convinced her enough from his non saying what he was saying. I mean, he didn't come out and say, Hey, I arranged all this stuff for Dumbo. You know, he didn't say that, but what he was saying was a cagey kind of a flirty kind of a, a braggioso. He's probably drunk, you know, you know, that, Oh yeah, I know a hell of a lot about this story, you know, and trying to impress her and trying to be this, you know, this swaggery guy that she made a tape of it and sent it to the AG's office, which journalists never do. Right. right? But it was, it was so obvious that this was information that they should have, but she she didn't volunteer a lot about that. I mean, I think she thought that the information that she had should be it was in the right hands, mm -hmm. and that she was smarter to keep more quiet, which was very unlike Molly to mm -hmm. keep quiet about anything. But um, but she indeed um, came away totally believing that that Neil Roberts was up to his neck in this whole thing. 
wanted to go back to your jailhouse interview with Adamson. Um, could you just sort of describe how you like came to uh, interview him with uh, Paul? He he had um, he had contacted me and sent me a box of information, uh, some some trial some trial transcripts and stuff, and said, "If anybody is going to write my biography, I want you to write it." And I'm thinking. I would no more write your biography than I would cut off my arm. Um, but he, he's, he, you know, he, he somehow latched on to me and I was at the new times then, um, as somebody that he thought would tell the truth about his life. Right. And I think that he wanted, I think that I, I agree that he's always been the, a patsy and always been just a, you know, kind of a fall guy, um, who decided that it was worth it for to spend 20 years in prison. Right. I mean, this, there's some, some people, he must have been paid off a humongous amount. Plus he got the state of Arizona to pay for education for his kids and all this kind of stuff, which was the only decent thing I ever thought the guy ever did. It, all it was my tax money, but, um, but anyhow, um, the, um, uh, so he, so when we con we contacted him and so we, so, so the two of us went down there and, you know, and you're in a little room of the size of this table, right? You're sitting and you're sitting as close as, you know, and he's sitting there and he's got shackles on this and that. And he had, he had embroidered, oh God, he embroidered or knitted something for me. I, I can't even remember what this is. I don't even know what this is, but he had knitted a, pre a present and it was like, you know, and, and Paul's looking at me like, my God, what's, what's, what's with it, you know? Ay, ay, ay. So, and then we just sat and we, and we just talked and we talked a long time before we ever got to the question about, you know, you know, why did you kill him? You know, but we talked about his family and about the, and his kids and the thing. And, but he, you know, I mean, he maintained the, you know, I mean, he, you know, he said, yeah, the states, the states theory never made any sense to me. I mean, that was one of his, one of his quotes, really? the states, and it's in, it's in that special report, the states theory never made any sense to me. And I'm thinking, Oh my God. You know, and you're the one who gave them the theory, you know? So, um, so it was, it, it was clear to me that he thought that someday somebody would see that he was not the guy who set the bomb. Uh, he since has died, of course. And so that, that never came, but he was out of prison when he died. I mean, they, they put him in witness protection and sent him somewhere and who knows where that was, wherever he was hiding. I mean, he never, he never re resurfaced, you know? Um, so, so that, that interview was, it was real, um, we were supposed to go for Mexican food afterwards. I remember I couldn't, I said, no, I, I can't eat anything because I, you know, this is, we got, we got to go back and write this story right away. You know, it's, it's, it's all fresh in our minds. And we went, both went back. We both wrote, a, wrote it so that we would, would not forget anything, you know, and we're taking, you can't have a tape recorder. So we're taking notes. We're taking hand notes, but there are the two of us who are sitting right there, both hearing the same words, you know, I think that there was some really big money and I always wanted to talk to his wife, Mary. I always thought that would be, that maybe she would eventually come through, you know, but I never got a chance to. Um, and she moved away right away. Mary moved, Mary moved away with, with the kids. And I think he just got an enormous, or, or they promised him the, the, an enormous amount of money when he got out or something. I mean, but there obviously was a lot of money that was involved somewhere along the line for him to do this. And I don't know what they had on him. They, you know, if, if the mob has something on you and they yeah. tell you to do this kind of thing, you know, you don't have a lot of, you know, negotiating power. So, but I think he got a lot of money. You know, I, there's a quote that I came across from Adamson, and I might have been in one of the Devereux reports, but he actually said the people involved with this don't give immunity. Like, in, yeah, in, right, inferring, right. inferring that uh, jail's a better option than, you know, buried in some ditch somewhere outside exactly. of Phoenix. And I, I've always felt that the, the real people behind this kind of leaned on him in a way that he didn't have much of a choice with right. regards to what he 
And there's another guy, I think it's, it, might, it might be Nathan, uh, a guy named Nathan or a guy named Leo, one of those two, this is in our report, who was a hitman for a mechanic. Yes. yes. Right? And his girlfriend came forward with a great information saying that he admitted to her that he was one of the big mechanics, meaning big killers mm -hmm. of the mob, and that he'd been offered the contract to kill Adamson. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yes, that's in our report. So Ad they wanted Adamson out of the way because he was the tie to Emprise, which is another reason why I believe Emprise is they said, so, and he turned down the, he turned it down and then they moved it, they moved away right away because he says, yeah, he says, you don't turn down these things. When they tell yeah. you, you're going to, you know, they give you a contract, you don't get to turn them down. Yeah. So it was, um, it, it's either Nathan or a guy named Leo, one of those two, but his girlfriend's name is like, it starts with a V, like a Vernicellia or something like that. That was his girlfriend's name. And she said that when they moved away, he finally opened up to her and was telling her things. And one was that he had been offered this contract to yeah. kill Adamson. I did want to touch quickly on the, the second trial of Max Dunlap and a couple of things that I found interesting. The first being uh, Roberts, sorry, they tried to get him to testify, but he said he refused to testify unless they would give him immunity for crimes committed before the murder because his immunity was always for crimes committed post both murders as an accessory, I'm assuming, to help Adamson get out of town. But the second part of that is the detective sellers that testified and got up on the stand and immediately got amnesia about the entire investigation. I wanted to know if you could kind of comment on both the, you know, Roberts refusing to testify unless he's given blanket immunity for crimes committed mm -hmm. with this murder. And then the lead detective on the Don Bowles investigation getting up there in the murder trial and conveniently forgetting 75% of mm -hmm. the investigation. I think that both of those things tie back to what was happening in the police department immediately on the thing. Can we talk about that a little bit? Mm -hmm. So the, the immediately uh, the day of the bombing, the guys from the OC, the um, uh, um, Organized Crime Division, OCD, Organized Crime Division, immediately rush out there, two, two of the guys. There's only a small staff, like four. They get out there and they immediately, they, they tell, the police tell them what, what Bowles has said. They immediately know all these characters, right? They know who Adamson is. They know uh, the whole thing. They brief 45 officers who are around the scene about these guys. Say, so you'll find him probably at the Ivanhoe drinking, um, da, 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 you know, which was absolutely true. It was exactly where he was. And so, so they go back and they start in and then the homicide guys, which is sellers, they're also assigned. So you've got two units of the police department, separate units, both supposedly investigating this thing full bore, right? The OC, the, the, the organized crime guys know more about organized crime. They, they know as much as Bowles knows. In fact, I, I think Bowles had, had courted one of these guys as a source to help him. Well, the system that they have over there is like an old fashioned library. You have a three by five card that tells you Okay, in file 851, it's all about the price. And file 82 is all about the funks. And file 1040, right. And it's like a, you know, like, the old, well, you probably like, guys don't even know. But in the old fashioned days, you had a, you had cards that yes, you went through in the library, library. Yeah. right? You pulled the card out and that told you where the book was. <laughs> well, that's exactly the system they have. So this is way before computers and everything online, right? So, but, but without the card, you've got nothing but walls of files stuffed full. You can't find anything unless you've got the card to tell you where to go. They, the first thing they did is pulled the cards. They pulled the cards on, on Adamson, on Emprise, and on the Funks. So the cards are now, you cannot, now you can't go to those files because you have no idea where they are, right? Except this one guy who just knew where one of the files was. 
Then they started going through the files and saying they got orders to take the Emprise file and to redo the files. That's when they, they copied everything, renumbered the pages and tried to put it back, make it look like it was the regular file, which the next guy that came along who knew this file said, this isn't the file. What's going on here? Right. So he's, so he, so they're, they're, they're purging things and they're getting, and then, then they're going off after they're taking out cards about Goldwater's, um, uh, uh, Steiger, Rosenzweig, who was the Republican state chairman, uh, had been for years, was the mentor to Goldwater. Th these three guys, especially all three Republicans, um, they are, they pull their cards. Now, they say, they say that, well, you know, we were just trying to clean up things and stuff and we didn't want, we didn't want the whole everybody because there's a lot of nuances in those things and a lot of raw data that doesn't mean. Da, 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 da. But what they were doing is they were sabotaging their own investigation. How do you try to hide the information of the very people that your 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 person who's dying in the hospital has been naming? Yeah, and that was the most disheartening piece of information. And we go through and there's a very very long article that that I helped write that um, in our special report about how all this information came through and how one guy who they finally were going to try to pin this on said, are you kidding me? Are you, I'm coming to this party late and I'm not taking the fall for this because you guys did this mm -hmm. immediately. And so he eventually um, comes forward because Dunlap's people for the second trial are suing the police department and demanding the files because they want to prove that there's nothing in those files that right. ties Dunlap to this murder. The court orders them to do that. They start shredding stuff even after the court order. So you, so Dunlap never gets the pages. Wow. He never gets stuff. He never gets the stuff he's, you know, that he was, he was, he was legally and, you know, and morally, uh, you know, justified in getting. So they go into trial thinking that they're going to have this information to help prove it. And that none of that's there. Yeah. It's like this, like this hot air balloon that just yeah. flew away. So the police department's investigation into that, and then the, the the organized crime guys are not talking to sellers. Sellers are not talking to him. So they're both like it's like the little fiefdom. Like, well, one of us is going to be a hero in solving this crime, and it's going to be me. You know. Well, this is you know that you know there's no cooperation between those two units. Right. You know, seller goes off. He buys the entire state theory. He to this day he buys the entire yeah. state theory. They never look beyond that. You know, they get, they have a theory. It is the, the blinders. If I, if there's anything that I, that is so infuriates me about the, the judicial system is that police often latch onto something very early. So it's easy and they stay there. They just stay there. They don't give a damn what information you find. They don't care what other stuff comes forward. They stay in their own little, you know, safe little corner and they miss, they miss all the time. Yeah. Well, with that being said, and Hindsight being 2020, why do you feel that Don Bowles was targeted and murdered? I think Don Bowles was going to expose a very important story that had something to do with Emprise and probably money laundering and the mob, uh, the connections with the mob. And so whatever the mob was into, whether they were into precious metals or into, you know, land fraud or whether it was it was it was skimming off the off the uh, casinos in Vegas. Um, <clears throat> I think that somehow. Uh, somebody in San Diego had a key to this thing that Don was going to find when he went to San Diego and they knew damn well they couldn't let him go to San Diego. 
Um, I have no idea who that person was, you know, um, the, the theory that it was uh, Brad Funk's ex-wife doesn't seem to hold up for me because why would she know that? You know, I mean, even if she sued the guy and said, I want you to give me these, these records, you're not going to find skim records. Uh, come on. You know, now there's a diary that shows up years later, you know, a mafia diary that shows the skimming from Vegas to Phoenix, which the police department discounts. Some FBI discounted. Others are saying, no, this thing is authentic. This, you've got to know this stuff to know, to know this thing. Right. So that diary is probably a key, but I don't know enough about that diary. I mean, I've only seen like one page that's been, you know, so, um, so I think he was killed to stop him from writing a story. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that story had to do with something to do with Emprise and the Funks.